I'll be good. FYI, it's just a bright light, so all I see is shadows flailing about. Oh, Brick's up there. I didn't know that. Oh, there we go. Hey, brother. Well, good morning. It is uh, always exciting to be here with you for Sunday school. Um, and you'll notice I have four scriptures. One of my favorite things to do is uh, always to uh, compare the authors as they tell their narrative of the life of Jesus and the uh, events in the Gospels. Um, so we're going to do that again here this morning. Uh, we'll start off with a bit of prayer and then we'll dive into the Word. I've, I've got a lot to say, so I'm, I'm going to have to manage my time really well. Um, but just, Father, we, we thank you. We appreciate all the many blessings that you have bestowed upon us as a as a church, as a network, and we we love you. It, it is so wonderful to dive into your word and to glean and understand your word for us today, even though this was written many, many hundreds of years ago. Lord, I pray to just open up our hearts and our minds to receive whatever it is that you have for us uh, this morning for Sunday school, today for worship. And, and in your message, we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. All right. Okay, let's get started. Um, as I was going through uh, my study, I, um, I fell upon this narrative. And, and it is one of the few stories in the Bible, uh, in the Gospels, really, where all four authors have a take on, on the events. And one of the things that uh, you always have to do when you read the Bible, not, not just read it for understanding, but obviously for study as well, is, is to take into account the author, the audience, the context uh, by which it was written. And, and so one of the things that I do whenever I study is I, I try to picture myself there in the room with them. Um, so I, I'll role play sometimes and for me, being a visual person, sometimes I'll move about my house trying to, to emulate whatever it is that happened that day. And, and so that's why you see me up here walking and moving and shaking around because that's, that's how I think. And, and I can see it in my head, and, and so my body reacts to it. And as I begin walking on water with Jesus, you'll see me take the big steps. Um, obviously, this story's not about walking on water. We did that one last time. But, but today, as, as I was reading this narrative, uh, I began to look at Jesus, the players, who was there, what was going on, and, and we're going to start with Matthew, go into Mark, John, and then into Luke. And, and I believe that as you start reading this with me, you'll begin to see a very clear picture of the events uh, right before Jesus was betrayed by Judas. So we're going to start here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve, 
And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. According, and, and they were exceeding sorrowful, began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, he said, I. And he answered and said, He that dips his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goes it is as, as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, You have said it. Thou hast said. It's interesting when you read this story like this because you get a very clear picture of what's going on, right? So Matthew tells us that they were um, collected together. The disciples asked him, where are we going to have Passover, right? It's about that time of the year. That's the reason we're in this, this city anyway. Where are we going to host Passover? And Jesus said, here's what's going to happen. You guys are going to go over there. You're going to talk to this guy. This guy's going to, you're going to tell him that Jesus wants to have Passover at his house. He's going to let you in. You're going to prepare everything there, and that's where we're going to have the Passover. Everything happens as he said it. They go, they prepare the place, they sit down, and they begin to eat. As is custom, you've probably seen the pictures right, of, of Jesus at the Passover. You see the giant table all spread out. You see his 12 disciples. Uh, we understand through history that there was probably more than 12 people there, plus Jesus, obviously. Um, you know, there's wait staff. There's people coming in and out. The master of the house is probably there enjoying supper with them. Um, when you think about 12 people, many of you were here last night as we enjoyed a, a feast of its own, you know, when you think about 12 people and just the massive amount that that represents at one table, you, you basically see the distance that people are, are conversing in. You know, when I, when I go to a party, I like to sit near the center of the table. You know, divide my time between the left and the right. If you are, uh, I'm going to say stuck, if you are stuck at one end of a table, what tends to happen is you speak with the three or four people around you. Why? Because those are the people that you are able to converse with. Alternatively, you've got someone way over there at the other end of the table, and you can shout across the room all you want, but what happens when you do that is that um, everybody stops. They all stop to listen to what you're saying because you're shouting across the room, and so they think, oh, well, obviously this is important, right? So I imagine, when you think about this story here, I imagine Jesus either seated where? At the head of the table. Why? Because he's an important figure. Or, as was painted, he's sitting in the middle, and all the disciples are on the left and on the right. And what does that mean for them? They're, they're probably not able to converse with each other very much, or with Jesus. Now, you would think that Jesus is a captive audience, right? Everybody wants to listen to Jesus. Now, these guys have been living with Jesus for years now. Years. They know him. They love him. They're, but they're not uh, in awe of him every single day. They are, they're listening to their friend. And I think that's what's important to recognize about this story. He is, he is their friend, best friend. And, and they love him like a friend. And they know, they know by this time that he is the son of God. But he acts human because he is human. But he is human around them. And, and so he, he probably has fun and he laughs and he, he cuts up with them and he enjoys his guy friends. And so these guys see him as 
a human. They understand that he is God, but they, they, they can separate the two in their mind because, they're again, they've been living with him. So when we think about this story right here, we, we tend to picture this narrative of Jesus sitting, again, at, either at the head or, or in the middle, and everybody's just silent, and they're all just watching Jesus. They're just looking at him. They're wondering, what is he going to say next? And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think these guys enjoyed each other's company, each other's company, not just Jesus. And so, obviously, they're going to talk with one another. They're, they're going to debate with one another. They're going to argue with one another. These are, these are guys we're talking about, right? Guys who are zealots, guys who are passionate about what they believe. So you better believe. Now, Jesus picked. I think it would be an amazing study to look at the, the people who were in his circle, who they were, what they did, how they did it. Um, but you look at every single one of these, and they're all different types of guys, right? You've got fishermen. You've got tax collectors. You've got people that he just kind of pulled off of the street and, and followed him around. You've got people like Mark, who was not a disciple, but was following Jesus everywhere. We don't know that Mark was not there. We don't believe he was, but we don't know that because it doesn't say this is the, the amount of people that were in the room. So there's a lot of assumptions made when we read the Bible, and we take it at face value, not understanding that there's a deeper undercurrent of context that, that God provides for us, and it is in the four Gospels when they're read together, and that's why we do these kinds of things. So we look at Matthew, and we see Jesus seated with his disciples. We do not get the context of the ruckus in this passage. Why? Because Matthew is telling us as Jews, this is who we wrote this book to, he's telling us as Jews that Jesus is the Messiah, so I'm going to rep represent him as messianic as I can. It's not a failing. It's not a problem. That is just his audience. I'm writing this to very formal Pharisees, Sadducees, Jews, doctors of the law, people who have read the, Bi the, uh, the Torah, the Bi their Bible, and who are trying to get a picture of who Jesus is. So he's not going to give us a lot of that, that fluff and that understanding, right? What he's going to give us is this is what happened and why it is historically, spiritually, and culturally significant. That's, that's what Matthew is trying to do for his audience. So when he looks at this, verse 21, And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. This implies to me that Jesus has their attention and that they are very sorrowful. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Think about how he said it and what he said. Jesus says, I say unto you, one of you shall betray me. So picture it in your mind. Jesus is sitting there, head of the table, middle of the table. And he, and he turns to his folks and he says, one of you shall betray me. Oh, Lord, no. No, not me. No, there's no way. Think, think about this, too. I think I, I mentioned this later, but I'm going to say it now. Every single one of them was saying, not me, not me, not me. At no point in time, especially in this book of Matthew here, do we ever see any of them say, oh, yeah, you know who it is? It's that guy over there. 
Have you ever thought about that? How did they not know that Judas was going to betray Jesus? Think about that. We look at the Bible, and because we've read it, we kind of look at these other passages, because you're reading Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. But you're reading this, and you think, oh, I've read Matthew, and now I'm in Mark. I know what happens at the end. Judas betrays him. It's like watching a movie twice. Oh, I know what's about to happen. How did these guys not know that Judas was going to betray Jesus? How did they not know? Because he didn't, he didn't show any signs of that. And that's, that's why I'm able to say, when you think about these guys and who they are, I, I have no doubt in my mind that they debated all the time. And they argued about things. And they said, well, look, here's what I think. And they would start talking about their belief system, their argument for why things should be and should not be. These were socio and political zealots who wanted to change the narrative. They wanted to change the government, the establishment. They were tired of, of this, this regime, and they wanted a new one to rise up. They all wanted this. And they thought Jesus was going to be the one that brought the new regime. Why did they believe that? Because they were Jews. And the Jewish Bible says that a Messiah will rise up and he will bring in and usher in a new kingdom, right? That's, that's the whole concept of Zion. It's the whole concept of the Messiah, salvation and bringing up a, a new world order, if you will. So, so as they are moving about in their daily lives, they're thinking about their perspective and what they want to happen in this kingdom. And what does Jesus do as he walks with them? He begins to change the way that they think. Very slowly, very demonstrably, he changes the way that they view this world. And he says, stop thinking about this place as the place that I'm going to change and start thinking about this place, and I'm pointing to my heart now, this place that I want to change. And this place, my mind, that I want to change. That is what Jesus came to change. Their hearts, their minds, their spirits, not their physical bodies. And they couldn't wrap their mind around it. It took them forever to finally understand what Jesus was talking about. It took death and resurrection for them to understand what Jesus was talking about. They couldn't get it. So we see here in Matthew, according to Matthew, he has their attention, right? One of you is going to betray me. They were exceedingly sorrowful. They said, Lord, is it I? They asked Jesus, you think about this. One of you is going to betray me. Oh, Lord, Lord, is it, is it me? No, Simon, it's not you. Oh, thank the Lord. It's not me. At that point in time, I have no doubt Simon stopped paying attention. Well, at least it's not me. One of you losers here is going to betray Jesus, but it's not me. And they go down the line, and they say, well, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? And, and they, there's, a, there's a joke that goes around. I think I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. There's a joke that my dad once told me, where, where the disciples are asking Jesus, Lord, is it me? And Simon says, Lord, is it me? And Jesus says, no, it's not you. And, and so Simon takes his, his wine, and he says a toast to Jesus, and they all start drinking. And then the next guy, Lord, is it me? No, it's not me. A toast to Jesus, and they all start drinking. And by the time he gets to Judas, he said, Lord, is it me? And Jude, Jesus says, yes, Judas, it's you. And Judas says, oh, he's drunk. We've all been drinking. I know, funny joke. This is the situation we're in, though. Nobody wants to betray Jesus. I mean, you think about that. Who wants to betray the guy that's out here healing people, touching them, 
bringing them back to life. Who wants to do that? Nobody does. So, so you can hear and feel the palpability of, of them getting this weight lifted off because Jesus sees things. They've seen him see things that have not yet happened. So obviously they take him at his word when he says, one of you is going to betray me. And, and they think, well, man, maybe he knows something that I don't know. Well, obviously he does, but what is it that he knows that I don't know? No, 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 Simon, it's not you. Oh, whew, good, good. I can go on with my, oh my gosh, I, I, I'm thinking about all the bad things that I've ever done in my life and, and how I had thoughts of revolution and how he keeps trying to change my mind and, and now he's saying it's not me, which is great. What is he not doing right now? Paying attention to everything else. So he continues, this is, spoiler alert, the only account where Judas asks and is answered in this fashion. This is the only time in the Gospels where we see Judas say, Lord, is it me? And Jesus says, yes, it is you. It's the only time we hear this. To me, it implies that Matthew was probably seated next to Judas or probably seated close enough to Jesus for him to pay attention and see that Judas raised his hand. Jesus said, yes, and that's how he identified it. This is the only time we see this. So then we begin to see a picture of where people are seated at this table. Matthew was probably either close to Jesus or close enough to Judas to hear him ask and get answered. And it's interesting because Matthew writes this story, obviously, this gospel, and helps us understand what happens immediately after, which is communion. I don't have it in here, but verse 26, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 26 begins with, then he broke the bread, they drank the cup, and they did all that. So communion happens after Judas asks Jesus. Let's look at Mark. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they had filled the Passover, killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat it the Passover? And he sent forth two of his disciples and said unto them, Go you into the city, you shall meet a man bearing a pitcher of water, follow him. Wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good men of the house, the master says, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. In the evening he came with his disciples, with the twelve, and as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eats with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and say unto him one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dips with me in this dish. We're going to keep going here, but wait. If Jesus said to you, to all of us, one of you is going to betray me, the one that's going to betray me is the one that takes their sop and sops at the same time as me, or the one that takes this sop that I'm about to, to take myself. Wouldn't you be like, I'm just going to, not going to sop anymore? That's it, I'm done. I'm done sopping for the day. Because if I sop with Jesus, that means I'm the one that's betraying him, right? So why would he even tell them that and give it away? Look, whoever does this is going to be the one that betrays me. Oh, okay, I'm going to put my chip back, and I'm not going to sop right now. So we keep going. The Son of Man indeed goes, as it is written of him, 
But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. This is interesting. We don't obviously see this in, in uh, Matthew. Mark is talking, obviously the voice of Jesus here, the Son of Man indeed goes that is written of him. Mark talking here, this is not about Judas. It's about his identification, about the sacrifice, about the forethought that Jesus had for the sacrifice of man. So when we look at Mark's narrative, it is very, and we've talked about this before, very evangelistic, very cut and dry. This is, this is exactly what happened, and then immediately, and then immediately, and then immediately. That's how Mark writes. So he's writing this, and he's telling them, this is, this is what, what happened. He said people are going to, someone's going to betray him. He said how it was going to be identified, and then he goes, and, and then he kind of gives a, a remark about Judas, and then he goes straight into communion, and then they go on to the garden. That's what happens next after this narrative. So not a lot to speak here about Mark, very close to what Matthew wrote, but you can see it's just a straight narrative. They're sitting down, they're eating, they identify. Um, all the things I said about Matthew, we could say about Mark here, but, but I find it interesting that he tells them, whoever dips with me is going to be the one that, that betrays me. And I don't think that he really meant if we dip at the same time, that's going to be the one that betrays me because that would be weird. Just don't dip with him. What I think he, what he, what I believe he was saying was this sop that I take, I'm going to identify you by handing it to you. I'm going to give it to you. And I think this is important because of what we read next. John chapter 13. When Jesus had thus said he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spoke. Listen to that. Doubting of whom he spoke. I said it earlier. They didn't know it was Judas. How do you not know? I've read the book, and I could clearly see that it was going to be Judas. But I've read till the end. They're living this thing, right? They, they believe Judas is one of the guys. He's part of it. He's just as much a zealot as any other guy there. They all want social and political upheaval. They want Jesus to take over. They want his armies to rise up. They believe, some of them more than others, that they are gaining converts in order to overthrow the government. You see Jesus giving uh, slaps in the face to the government as he does things. And, and by government, I really mean the Sanhedrin, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the doctors of the law, the people who are in charge from a religious perspective. You see him countermanding them all the time. Jesus, I, I was going to pick this story as well. It's a great story. Jesus there on a Sunday, on a Sabbath day, goes up to a man. He goes up to the religious leaders. And he says, what, what, what's better, guys, to do evil or to do good? If you had a lost sheep on a Sabbath day, would, wouldn't you go and find it? If you found it in a well, wouldn't you go and, and get it out of that well? Or would you say, oh, man, it's, it's the Sabbath day. I guess I'll have to wait till tomorrow. He said, no, you would go to the sheep. You would help the sheep. And he said, this man right here has a withered hand. Shouldn't I help him? And he's looking at these religious leaders, and they're all quiet. They're, they're keeping their mouths shut. They don't want to get in trouble. 
They don't want to they don't want to go against what they've believed all their lives, the tradition, the religion, the law. And so they they don't say anything. But in their hearts they're saying no. It is against the Sabbath to heal, to do any type of miracle, to do anything that is like this. And in in other words, anything that's good. And so Jesus sorrowful, sad that these guys would think this way, turns to the man and he says, I'm going to heal you. Be healed. Stretch forth your hand. The guy stretches forth his hand. Beautiful miracle. The guy's hand comes out full, restored. He's happy. He's elated. And, and of course, so devastating. Of course, these, these religious people go off and, and they, they think about a way to kill the guy that just happened to heal on the Sabbath. He did something amazing, and it helped somebody. And here they are thinking, now we got to kill this guy. This, this guy is no good. we got to destroy him. Man, that is awful when you think about it. He just healed somebody, and now they're thinking about, well, he went against everything that we believe. He, he countermanded our beliefs. And, and these disciples see it, and they learn from it. And, and what the question, though, becomes, what do they learn from it? Do they learn that Jesus was here for the people to love, to heal, to help? Or do they believe that Jesus is countermanding the government? Those are two different perspectives, but taken out of the exact same situation— he stuck it to the man. That's what Jesus was here for, to stick it to the man. He was going against all of the politics and, and, and society, and he was uprooting all these things. No, 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 no. If you look at what Jesus really was doing, he was loving and helping people. But depending on which disciple you talk to, that perspective changes. It flips around. They had debates among themselves. They argued about things. I believe that the government should be this and that, and no more taxes. Some probably had a, a more democratic mindset, some a more republican mindset, some were independents, some were all for green energy, some were for drilling oil. I mean, it, it, they were varied people. They believed all sorts of things. Jesus brought these varied people together under one roof, and he said, we're going to accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. And their interpretation of what that meant was very different from person to person. So when you see this narrative here, when you see that the disciples looked at one another and said, wait a minute, which one of these guys is going gonna, is gonna to betray Jesus? How did they not see? Because Judas was one of them. Now, 23, there was a leaning on, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, John. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said unto him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop. Not who dips at the same time as I do, but who I will give this to when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the, sup, after the sop, Satan entered into him. Interesting. 
So Jesus dips. So Simon Peter says, John, figure it out. Find out who it is. Remember the table? Long table, right? Give me some room, some elbow room. So a little bit of space. Simon leans over or, or maybe even comes over, depending on where he's seated, he comes over to John. He says, hey, John, when you get a minute, see if you can find out who it is that, that's going to betray him. Ask Jesus. You're close to him. Figure it out. Walks away. John, laying there, thinks about it. He's not going to turn around immediately and, and do it. He probably waited a little while. Simon Peter probably walked away, or if he was there sitting next to him, he's probably having his own conversation. So he's sitting there. John turns over to Jesus, lays his, his head on his buddy because he loves him so much, and he says, hey, Jesus, who is it? Who is it that is going to betray you? And, and Jesus says, I'm going to take this bread, and I'm going to dip it, and I'm going to hand it to somebody. The person who I hand this to will be the one that betrays me. At this point in time, man, his eyes are perked open. John is now paying attention. Okay, who's he going to give it to? Man, I hope he doesn't give it to me. So he dips it, picks it up, hands it over to Judas. Judas has to be close at this point in time, or close enough that Jesus can reach across the table and hand it to him, right? I, I have no doubt Jesus didn't stand up and make a big show of, here you go, Judas, because that would have been the only one. It would have been very obvious. Apparently, everybody was oblivious to what was going on. So he dips it, hands it over to Judas. Judas takes it, and he says, go and do what you're going to do. Look, we're here at Verse 27, and after the sob, Satan entered into him. Consider this. Well, let me, let me go here first. Then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest do quickly. No man at the table knew for what intent he spoke this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag, he was the treasurer, that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we need, we need for the feast, that he should give him something to the poor. He then received the sop went immediately out, and it was night. And then we go and see the betrayal. Consider this, though. In verse 1 of this chapter, chapter 13, it's not in here. You're going to have to read it on your own. But in verse 1 of chapter 13, Jesus does this. Does anybody know what he does? Anybody? Jesus does this. He walks into the room takes off his robe, and he stands in front of his disciples, well, kneels in front of his disciples, and he begins to wash their feet. He washes the feet of his disciples. And Simon Peter, who loves Jesus, who thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, says, no, you will not wash my feet. Why would he say that? I mean, just think about the context. Why would he say that? Because, Jesus, you are a king. You are a ruler. You are my master. You're, yes, you're my friend, but I hold you in the highest esteem. So for you to wash my nasty, dirty, stinky feet is, is an abasement of who you are. You shall not do this. And what does Jesus say? Unless I do this. Unless I wash your feet, you're not my friend. You're not my disciple. Because what am I trying to teach you, Simon and everybody else? That you have to humble yourself. That no man is above another man. That we have to love one another. If you want to be a master, you be a servant. In fact, he says that right after that. 
If you want to be the greatest, be the least. You have to debase yourself. You have to stop thinking of yourself up here and consider yourself down here and you serve. You are here to serve the kingdom. And this is, guys, this is what I've been trying to teach you this entire time. I'm not here to overthrow. I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve the people, the people of God. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. You're here to serve. And I need you to understand that, Simon and Judas and everybody else. I need you to change your mindset and stop thinking about this as kingdom overthrowing, but kingdom creation. It's a different narrative than what's going on in your heads right now. So John chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus comes down, washes the feet of the disciples, and he says, you guys need to serve. This goes against everything that Judas believes. He was probably in the Simon camp saying, no, 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 no. This is not how a king acts. Stop doing this kind of stuff, Jesus. You need to rise up. You need to take out your sword. You need to destroy this, this, this world-conquering Roman legion and the Greeks and all these other things. They're destroying our culture. You need to rise up, Jesus. I need you to rise up. I need you to be the God and the king that, that we need here in this place. That's what Judas is thinking. So when Jesus says, I'm going to dip this sop and I'm going to hand it over. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Before then, Judas already, already was listening to the voice of the enemy. The Bible says this, listening to the voice of the enemy, not in these words, obviously, listening to the voice of the enemy and allowing him to enter his heart. How? My way. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about doing things in my timing. It's about doing things the way that I think they should be done. That is how Satan enters into us, but enters into Judas. And so when Jesus hands him this sop, when he says, look, I know, I know it's you. I know you've already been thinking these things. Judas, he lets himself go to it. He's like, you're right. I, I'm, I'm sick of this. You, you're washing feet. You're talking about being servants. It's not good enough. I'm going to force your hand because I know who you are. That's the, that's the weirdest thing about all this. Judas knows who Jesus is. He has seen the miracles. Man, this guy turns water into wine. This guy heals withered paraplegic people, blind people. He walks on water. You've got to believe, having seen all that, that Jesus can do anything, anything. And the way that he talks about knowing the Father and, and being part of the Father and Simon Peter acknowledging that he is God, the Son, he's Christ, all these things, Judas knows what Jesus is capable of. Don't you think, having seen all this, Judas knows he's not an idiot. He didn't forget the day before, so he sees it. And he says, I'm going to force your hand. If you're not going to be the king that, that I require you to be, I'm going to make you the king that I require you to be. Because I'm going to put you in a situation where your life is in danger. I'm going to call these, these uh, Pharisees, these teachers of the law, I'm going to bring them over. And I'm going to have them arrest you. And when they arrest you, guess what? They're going to kill you. And if they kill you, then you can't establish your kingdom here on this earth. And that's not what you want. You want to establish the kingdom, Jesus. So I know that when I do this, they're going to do this. And then you, 
I know it. You're going to rise up. You're going to call your, your army. And this is how our revolution begins. Because this army, the, the army of God, the angels, the powerful, are going to come down. They're going to destroy everything for having touched God's anointed. That's how my revolution, my Judas revolution, is going to begin. It's going to begin with a kiss. That is the story of Judas and what he wanted for Jesus to do. We, we see bits and pieces of this throughout the Gospels. We see here the sop and him entering into, Satan entering into Jesus. John hears only a small part of it, only that Judas will be the one that betrays him. And at this point in time, what we don't see is John jumping up and saying, Oh, my Jesus. It's going to be Judas, guys. It's going to be Judas. He just said it. doesn't do that. I think John was blown away. I think everybody thought Judas was one of the good guys. In fact, they probably thought he was one of the great guys because he was always taking care of things with the money. He was always helping out. He was always... He was always pushing Jesus to do more, do more, do more. Guys, this is great. Look how great Jesus is doing. We're, we're going against the Sanhedrin. We're going against the Pharisees. Guys, we're winning. I bet he had one of those personalities that made you believe that things were happening, and they were happening fast. Him and Simon Peter, thick as thieves, I'm sure, not, not friendship-wise, but pushing each other to get more and more and more out of Jesus. Why do I say that? This is why. Luke chapter 22. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. He took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and gave unto them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So first here in Luke we see communion. Oh, look, it's communion. Communion. Second conversation. But behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it was, as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. So here we see a fuller picture of the conversation, of the things that are going on. Hey, one of you is going to betray me. So I mean, Peter turns to, to Matthew, or he turns to Peter. I'm, I'm sorry, to uh, uh, James. And he says, man, who do you think it is? There's no way that any of us would betray him. Well, I don't know. There's, you know, so-and-so over there, Timothy, doesn't believe as much as everybody else. He's always doubting. So, so why would he be here, Thomas? I meant Thomas, I'm sorry. Why would, why, would, why would Thomas be here if he's always doubting? So they're having this conversation. They're talking to each other. And, and they're listening to Jesus, but it's so, there's so much noise going around, they're probably not fully paying attention to what he's saying. There was also strife among them. Verse 24, which of them should be accounted the greatest? And he said unto them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them. And they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so, 
He that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as that he that does serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serves, is not he that sitteth at meat. But I am among you as he that serves. You are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father has appointed unto me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Look at the language here. Thrones, kingdoms, authority. You don't think people are already thinking highly of themselves? I am one of the twelve. And he's talking about giving me a throne, a kingdom. They're so earthly-minded, the first picture that comes into their mind is a castle. A castle on a hill, him on his throne, servants coming by and giving him food, a court jester, beautiful queen for him to love, people that swear their fealty to him. That's, that's the mindset, that's the language that Jesus is talking about. Now, have, us having have read the book... What do we think about? Well, we think about heaven. We think about the spirit. We think about the authority that God has given us in the spirit over the natural, not in the natural over the spirit. That's not how they're thinking, though. So he's saying these things. Their minds are wandering. They get very little sleep. They get very little food. Minds are wandering. They're tired because I wasn't talking to you. They're sitting here thinking. She does that all the time, Siri. They're thinking all these things as Jesus is talking about the kingdom. In verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Man, you think about that. I prayed for you, Simon, because I know Satan wanted this exact same thing that he's about to do with Judas for you. What's the difference between Simon and Judas? Simon, in his heart, was starting to turn around and see things Jesus' way. Starting to. It was very difficult, very slow, but he was starting to. Judas was a zealot, and it, nothing was going to change his mind about the way things needed to be done. Nothing was going to change his mind. When Satan entered Judas, or started to enter into the mind of Judas, Jesus knew there's no way that I'm going to change his mind. Could he have snapped his fingers and done something? Yes, obviously. It's not free will, though. Judas had this mind that was not going to be changed. A heart that was not going to be changed. Simon, on the other hand, had the same zealotry that Judas had, but he knew that Jesus was trying to change hearts and minds. And so Jesus says, look, I prayed for you. I prayed that you wouldn't go down this same route. But let me tell you, Satan 100% wants you to be just like Judas over there. He wants to have you. And when you have changed your ways and your heart is flipped and your mind is flipped and you understand the kingdom I'm talking about, your purpose is gigantic because your job is to reach these people, the ones here in this room. Convert them. When you are converted, convert them and help them understand what it is that I'm talking about. I'm making you, here and now, Simon Peter, my right-hand man. Here we see, not 
this one here, but later we see Simon say, Look, Lord, I would never betray you. I would never betray you. And Jesus is like, pay attention, because you're about to. You're about to deny that you even knew me. You're going to do it three times. Then the cock is going to crow, and then you're going to know Jesus was right. These guys were zealots. They wanted to destroy the establishment. At this point in time, Jesus says all these things, and then they go in, in Luke, the rest, the, the rest of the passages, goes to the garden, and, and this is when Peter says, I won't deny you. It is interesting to me to see the narrative of the Last Supper and, and how, not different, but, but how varied the account is based on who is saying it. And, and I think it paints a beautiful picture for us of the chaos that existed in that place at the time. Because again, we see, I believe it was Michelangelo who painted that painting, right, of, of Jesus in the middle, the Last Supper. They're at the table, and they're all just kind of sitting there paying attention, and they're looking at it, at, at Jesus, and just raptured, and raptured listening to what he's saying. And, and that's just, to me, that's not reality. I mean, you look at last night, and, and again, many of you were here, and, and the party that we had, the, the rave that it was last night, um, and, and just how much chaos there is at a party. You talk to people that you like, you tolerate people that you don't like, you're, you're walking around making sure that you don't let anybody feel like you don't like them, not that I do this, you talk to them, you make them feel comfortable, you make them feel happy, right? You are there to enjoy the party, but you're also there to enjoy your friends, people that you haven't seen in a while. You hug them, you say hello, but, but you can't stay with one individual, so you, you hop around and you talk. These guys are with, them, with each other all the time. This is one of the few times that they get to just rest. Have you ever thought about how you choose where you're going to sit at a party? It's kind of strategic when you think about it. You want to be in a place where you can talk to people, people you like and enjoy. Sometimes you pick places where you're meeting with someone that you haven't spoken with in a while, but to that, whose company you really enjoy. Some people, depending on whether they're introverts or extroverts, like to sit very, very close family or friends, they'll sequester themselves. Sometimes they put their, their, themselves in a place of prominence. They like to be seen. Some people like to put themselves in the back of the room. They don't like to be seen. We, we don't think about these things strategically necessarily, but we all do them out of, out of habit, out of just happenstance many times. These guys were guys. They were normal people felt the exact same way. So when they sat with each other, they probably sat with people they, they had, that had a like mind. They didn't sit with people that they argued with all of the time because they knew, man, this, this dinner's just going to be an argument, and I don't want that. So they sat with people they liked. They probably sat with their family, people that they knew and they loved, right? I, I love hanging out with my, my family, my close friends. Peter, James, John, probably all sat together. We don't know because it doesn't say. But when you look at how these four stories are laid out like this, you can kind of start getting a picture of where people are, who's doing what, and what are they saying. So as I finish all of these things, many, many out there look at these stories and say, look at the disparity. Obviously, the Bible is uh, con contradicting itself. 
doesn't know what it's saying because all these stories are different. I, I feel the opposite. Look at how different these four stories are because four people, well, one people, two people were actually there. Two people heard it secondhand. One heard it thirdhand, actually. So, of course, you're going to get four different accounts of the story, but when you read them together, you get a full picture of what's going on. And it makes sense why they didn't know that Judas was going to betray Jesus. It makes sense. They just couldn't see it because they felt the same way. And now that when, when you think about Jesus dying, when he died, how scared they were. Why were they scared? Obviously, we weren't scared because we've read the back of the book. They didn't have a book to read. So they're scared because they're thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. He has power over water. He has power over physical bodies. He has power over sight and sound and mind. And, and now he's dead. Everybody, he's dead. They're freaking out. They're, they're freaking out that this could even happen, that someone could betray. How can you betray Jesus? Jesus can snap his fingers and things happen. How, is, how can anybody betray him? Not, not from a um, mindset per perspective, but from a physical perspective. You can't get a jump on him. He knows what you're going to do before you're going to do it. There's no way that Jesus would let himself be betrayed. So when he died, man, it, it blew their minds. What it took was him coming back to life for them to recognize this is not about the physical I was so wrong about what's going on. This is about the spiritual, our hearts, our minds. And that is what converts Simon Peter. That is why when they're in the upper room, they're waiting. They finally get it. It's time for us to step back, stop thinking about the uprising, and start thinking about the, the inner uprising waiting on the Lord, seeing what's going to happen, boom! The fire of God falls, a voice, uh, the sound of a rushing mighty wind, the Spirit of God comes upon them, they begin to speak in tongues, and Peter gets it, finally gets it. And he begins to prophesy, he speaks in tongues, he begins to preach, and then you see him truly rise up into his purpose after the death of Jesus. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he says, and when you are converted, you get the rest of these guys in line and what needs to happen. And he becomes that pillar of the church. We wouldn't have seen that unless we saw the full picture of what's going on. So, Father, thank you for this time, this revelation, this story. I, I thank you for the fullness of your word and, and, and just the, the pictures that you provide for us to understand our life and what we need to do about the, the kingdom that you have given us, Lord, that it's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual, it's about people, it's not about religion, it's not about law, it's about knowing and following you. We thank you for that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you. I, I guess I'll pause here if there's any questions, comments, insightful observations. Everybody's tired from last night's shindig. Thumbs up. Thank you. Okay.